And we're on the air. This is Itzabo. And this is Morgan. And we're here to introduce you to a new thing that we're going to have on the program. You know, how when you're with someone for a really long time and it's just the two of you and it's like you really like that person. You love them, in fact. But you just kind of want to make other people feel uncomfortable. (laughs) And you want to do it in intimate and close quarters over a bottle of wine. And you just, it's perfect. (laughs) You also want to introduce others, particularly people that you like to the genre of romance where everybody can feel good, empowered, and get into the stuff, you know, that they're into. Absolutely. And sometimes you want to take people who know way more than you do and also bring them into the fold. Exactly. On this week's episode of Romance, we are so excited to introduce you to someone who is near and dear to our hearts and is about to be near and dear to yours. That was so good. Thank you. So buckle up, Buttercup. We got something new and something delicious just for you. Ah! I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about bodice busters, romance novels, mongooses. Oh! Mongooses. Mongeese. <laughs> is that the correct one? <laughs> Block of mongeese. <laughs> the sands of time. Musty, dark places. And tombs. But most of all, but most of all, I would say this is a podcast about ourselves, our romance novels, our pleasures. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. Here we go. We have a very special guest with us. Would you like to introduce yourself? I want to give. I want to give her an introduction. Okay. Do it. She's got great hair. Mm -hmm. She's got a fun personality. Super true. true. She taught high school English for a really long time, and then she became our dear friend in grad school. She knows a lot about Steven Universe. (laughs) Please welcome to the podcast, Kim! Hi. (laughs) I'm honored to be here. Good. I've listened to the podcast and had a lot of strong opinions that I will probably not voice here. Good. Would it hurt our feelings? Would any of them hurt our feelings? No, I'm just shy and therefore contrarily asked to come on the show so that I can sit here and be reluctant to talk. (laughs) We went and got lunch and I told you that Isabel and I were thinking about doing this podcast about romance novels and that was the first time I uncovered the fact that you are interested in romance novels. Let alone, how long have you been reading them? I guess since middle school. I used to um, wrap them in this white construction paper book cover that I made so that I could read them anywhere without raising suspicion, which I feel like failed quite often. <laughs> like a semi-transparent <laughs> Like you can see the outline, like somebody's going to be tracing it Just later. <laughs> so yeah, for a long time I wanted to be a romance novelist. Because um, I feel like it's the happiest thing to read most of the Aww. time. I do think that's true. I think so, too. Outside of children's books. Uh, some of those get real dark. Yeah. I don't like dealing with the un- <laughs> underlying ethos and pathos of the children's book authors. Indeed. They're always trying to teach you things and deal with your innocence. Give you lessons. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. I want to get right to the smacks. Don't make me imagine what <laughs> Mr. Popper was doing in his refrigerator <laughs> with those penguins. <laughs> There were so many of them. Ooh, I've never read Mr. Popper fan fiction. I feel like that could be good. <laughs> I wonder what it's like. What about like um, a Mr. Popper and Amelia Bedelia crossover? Mm. Like she comes to his apartment to clean things up and he's like, oh my God, you did such a bad job as Amelia Bedelia is wont want to, to do. do. And he disciplines her. Vociferously. Whoa! <laughs> We just wrote a really good, we just wrote a really good fanfic. Let's just change the names, publish it. I know. All right. Kim, would you like to give us the synopsis of this book since you recommended it to this podcast? Yeah, we tend to have the person who did not pick the book read the synopsis, but you are our special guest. Sure. I think I can do this. You can do it. Okay. Okay. Egypt. 1821. Holy shit, you're already talking about the book! So the book starts... I think in the best way possible, which is with an overdramatic action scene where there is a young, beat-up, poor person in the streets of Cairo who is being harassed by some kind of police government official. Mm-hmm. And in comes sexy 
dark-eyed, dark-haired, rock-hard chest, mm. yeah. Rupert Carsington. Mm-hmm. I love it. Okay, so the first paragraph introduces our hero, as mm-hmm. per usual, but then the second paragraph said, the locals had the advantage of the <laughs> Earl of Hargate's fourth son. And it's like, the sun's beating down, and there's like a crowd, and there's it's so and high. Like a bridge or something. <laughs> it's so good. Immediately so good. So... <laughs> What I love about this novel, which kind of ties into the summary, is that a lot of romance novels have these kind of ridiculous plots, but maybe sometimes the romance doesn't work for me. What I love about this novel is that it's a crazy plot. It's a kidnapping scheme, you know, having to rescue your brother when he has been taken hostage because they think he's the scholar when you're the scholar all along. Dun, dun, dun. You're the crazy genius. And then you have this super sexy, attractive, dumb, presumably man who has been assigned to you so that you can rescue your brother. Assigned to you by, by the, the British consulate. By the consulate. Because yeah. they don't want him. Yeah. Because he's don't. just like rich and dumb. Just gets into trouble too often. Yeah. Rescuing Is immediately imprisoned upon arriving in Egypt. This is his fourth imprisonment. That's why the consulate's trying to like pawn him off because oh. he's cost too much money in bribes. So they think they can just have him help this lady. They think that her brother has just been like in a brothel for the past week and that's why he hasn't come home. So they hope that he'll just kind of sit there with her innocently and like tactfully, which mm-hmm. is a fault on their parts. Totally. Until the brother comes home. The idea that he'll like just like keep her rounded, but also distracted by little silly searches. But also like he'll go into those brothels and opium dens and like discover the brother, clean him up and then get him home. And then whatever story they want to tell, they'll just tell her. Honestly, now that we're laying it out, it seems like a lot of responsibility for someone who they think is stupid. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a really bad plan. (laughs) It is a little bit of a cockamamie (laughs) scheme. Yeah. But it's also, it's money-based mm-hmm. because they don't have really the money to bail him out anymore. Right. Yeah. So and she use, does. Yes. And they also want to keep her widow money for funding projects for... Consulate stuff. Consulate. Colonialism. Selling yeah. artifacts. Yeah. Definitely. This is a hardcore colonialism. They needed the capital to do it. They needed her capital to rape the, the nation, nation state. Yeah. <laughs> Which is an interesting struggle in this book. Indeed. It yeah. is. Dealing with kind of the colonial aspects of Egypt. I think that she struggles in a good way to have the characters acknowledge it, have problems with it. But it's also hard because it's a very lighthearted novel. Yeah. So it's like, let's dip into it for a moment, but then let's have like a mongoose show up to like kind of diffuse the tension. Yeah. Of having to think about it. I've loved the mongoose <laughs> as a species since Ricky Shiki Tabby. Again, another colonial mm. story. And I think it's interesting that British people or like, Westerners love the idea of the mongoose, like a particular kind of ferret that then kills cobras and is like so tough and so like can like whatever. It's like a honey badger thing, yeah, like smaller and softer and also likes people. It's like a very interesting way to talk about like an insidious kind of colonialism. Do you know, I recently saw a documentary about the fur trade in China Mm. and they went to a mink farm. And I didn't realize this, but minks are like more lovable lovable than like cats. Like, a mink will immediately like you. And the mink farmers, like, the people who are employed by at these mink farms, like, have favorites. And they all have, like, names. So according to Wikipedia, the historical, <laughs> the English name for mongoose first appeared in the lexicon in 1698. I just need to know what the plural is. Mongooses. Mm. And very rarely and incorrectly mongoose. Okay, mongooses is correct. Mm-hmm. I like it. I like it. But anyways, that made me think about, like, I mean, it feels like a pretty big metaphor. Like, we're able to love something and then love, air quotes, love something and then slaughter it for its pelt. (laughs) We can love something but not humanize it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which I think is kind of reflected in this book. Certainly. And the colonial condition. I think it's definitely a struggle, too. Like, having read a lot of Loretta Chase, I think her strengths lie in her comedy and her use of like a large ensemble of characters that aren't necessarily all deep or Mm -hmm. like deeply considered but very charming and humorous in their own ways Mm -hmm. i think that's a little bit more problematic when you're setting it in a place like egypt just because you have colonial considerations yeah 
So and there, your main characters are all English. What's interesting about Rupert, though, Rupert Carsington, is that it's alluded to that his mother is Egyptian. That's why he's dark. And so his... What? Yeah. She's dark, but she's not Egyptian. Okay. There's, like, a discussion of her not being a typical English rose and, like, perhaps from a different place. He's also darkly complected. Mm-hmm. Like, they were, describe him as more than tan. I didn't think anything of that just because so many romance heroes are dark haired. People think about Fabio as a blonde, mm-hmm. but most of the time whenever they painted him for covers, they made his hair dark. <gasps> yeah, most of the time they were darkening his hair. That's weird. It is weird. It's not great. That's fine. <laughs> I don't care. Like, a hair color difference isn't gonna change my, my life. I guess you don't have a lot of golden-haired heroes. Yeah, it's considered effeminate. Vikings? It's considered effeminate to have light hair. I don't know. Hmm. Oh, it's because you can't be roguish in that way. Like, there's also, something about well, it also, like, like, Nazis. Vikings aren't necessarily all thought of as blonde. That's true. Or sexy. Yeah. Or sexy. And I think, like, the Aryan thing <laughs> did something to blondes, men in particular. Because, like, we have lots of blonde heroines, especially from the 80s and 90s, but we don't have much of them in the aughts or the... Hmm. I always think of the villain in 80s movies was blonde. Like oh, James yeah. Spader oh, in every movie. Spader. I'm trying to think of like a blonde haired like matinee idol from any period. James Dean? He wasn't blonde. And he was in black and white film. James Dean is definitely blonde. I was going to say Errol Flynn. Errol Flynn's a good one. Robert yes. Redford. Robert Redford. He's redheaded. Paul Newman. He doesn't read redheaded. <laughs> I also think I don't think we can count Errol Flynn and James Dean because they were in a they were in the ambiguous space of black and white. Okay, that's fair. But it reads differently, don't you think? It does read differently. There's something about like a very blonde man, like a Fabio blonde man, that is striking enough that you wouldn't ever be like, oh, is he? You Ryan know? Gosling. I think about like. A bright blonde. Daniel Craig. There we go. Daniel Craig. Mm. They made a big deal about him being the first blonde Bond. They did make a big deal of that. The striking blue eyes. Mm. Isn't Brad Pitt blonde? Yes. Brad Pitt is blonde. I've never understood the appeal of Brad Pitt, but I understand that he is a thing that ladies feel thanks for. That's true. It's a good one. Brad Pitt's a really good one. Carrie Elwes. Oh, that's a good (sighs) one. Yeah. Good blonde. Thank God you're here, Kim. But I will say, we tend to associate dark-haired men as more masculine and handsome. Yes, we do. And so I didn't notice that they mentioned that he was dark. I was like, yeah, of course he's dark. And she's redheaded, pale skin, crazy yep. green eyes. Where do we want to start? How do we want to dive in? We- I want to talk about, we were talking about the mongoose. Let's go back to the mongoose. What was her name? Marigold. Marigold, oh. a silly name for a silly goose. There's definitely, there are a lot of animals in this novel that get named. Mm-hmm. That's kind of, and that's a specifically Rupert thing, which makes him very close to a Disney prince. Oh my God, the my donkey. What was the donkey's name? The donkey's Hermione. name was Hermione. Hermione the donkey. And he gets really worried about her. You're right. That is Hermione very Disney is very like, mm-hmm. expressive. Like I understood Hermione's personality. I understood Marigold's personality. And their needs in relation to like what Rupert was like putting down. And like the way that he like cuddled them and took care of them and like Yeah, it did it did make Rupert particularly charming. Oh my god. But I don't think it revealed what I think is interesting about it is like Rupert I would have understood as like a tender and charming person without mm-hmm. the animals. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like the animals were just there to delight me. <laughs> which is fair. Which is like I also think like that's incredible that she has like on its base, like let's talk about our, our cast of characters we have to keep up with. Got a hero and her heroine. Rupert and Daphne. Daphne. Roops and Daphs. We've got her brother. Miles. We've got the villain. We have two villains. We have two villains. Yeah. Competing colonial interests. Yes. France and England. We've got the consulate. We've got Daphne's dead husband. Virgil. Oh, Virgil. Who we remember, who is, it exists via memory. And like shadows. We've got Rupert's brother who exists and he's constantly bringing up. Well, he has a, four brothers. But he's the been, character from the previous novel. Alistair. Alistair mm-hmm. is from brought the, up pretty regularly. Like she does have this like enormous cast. Mm-hmm. That they kind of accumulate as they keep going. Yeah. And then we also have Hermione the donkey and Marigold the mongoose. And we haven't even talked about the Egyptians. Or the cats. Or the cats. <laughs> the two cats. Gog and Magog. All right. There's a lot to talk about, as we've clearly established. Do we want to talk about the Egyptians? Do we want to talk about our hero and heroine? Where do we want to start? Well, I was, I was, I want to 
talk about the animals. Okay. <laughs> what else do you want to say about Hermione, Magog and Gog, and uh, Marigold? Marigold? Well, I want to talk about, like, this general enormous cast of characters in general. Because mm-hmm. Kim made, like, the really big point that this is a big cast. And I, and I like all of them. And I feel like if... I was introducing them at a cocktail party. I could tell you something about all of them. Mm. Like, whenever their dialogue appears, I know immediately who it is. That's wild! Yeah. That someone was able to do that in such a, like, brief book. And then you feel a ton of affection for a lot of these characters, even though they don't have a ton of depth, necessarily. They're all, they have something charming about them. I Distinctive think, enough that yeah. it feels like... They've all got, like, a really good foothold. Can I be a negative Nancy? Yeah, good. Yeah. So I agree with everything that you guys are saying. And I think especially like the idea that without an appellation tag on a piece of dialogue, I recognize who's speaking. That to me demonstrates a kind of deft care. Like we're working with somebody who knows how to fucking write some dialogue. Yeah. And I love that. I was a little not into the depiction of the cast of characters when it came to the Egyptians themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, Ahmed was fine. The servant of Miles. Right. Who then comes back at the end. Mm -hmm. I loved that. I wasn't as convinced about the Thomas... Tom Udell. Udell and Nafisa storyline. And there was a there was a moment, especially with Nafisa and her daughter, that felt a little white savory on mm. the part of Daphne. Yeah, yeah. And especially the fact that, and like here's the thing, um, that Rupert and Daphne constantly say to each other when they're alone. It's like the Egyptians are very emotional and that like their language and their hyperbolicness and the way that they gossip with each other. And like, you can't tell them too many things at once because they'll, they'll think the worst and they're very superstitious. Like they're literal. They don't understand sarcasm. But to me, I was like, that's just the English talking about anyone who, it was the over emotionality, especially of the Egyptians that I found uh, grotesque in a particular kind. Yeah, I think what's tricky is that, if, like, if you read the book before this, Miss Wonderful, yes, Miss <laughs> Wonderful, and then followed by Lord Perfect, they all kind of go together. Perfect. Um, it's in like a rural English village, yeah. and so all of the cast of characters in this English village are also silly and hyperbolic and ridiculous. Yeah. So I could say like, oh, that's just kind of Loretta Chase's way of doing an ensemble. Yeah. But I do think she needs to bring a particular sensitivity. Yes, absolutely. Working with like you know a whole culture. It was weird though, to like, it. I didn't think like Daphne and Rupert's perceptions were in any way like reflections of what was actually going on or like the author's perspective. I was just like, God, yeah, the English. That's interesting because at times I felt that way where I'm like, I understand that there's a separation in time. And like, again, like Loretta Chase is like fucking knocking it out of the park in terms of characterization. But like the fact that there was like this continual harp on the idea that mm-hmm. the Egyptians were over emotional or hyperbolic was really weird to me. Yeah. And I, the thing that I resonated with me was that they kept being like, they're not going to understand sarcasm. Which <laughs> feels like so condescending. Condescending. Yeah. Like, Rupert's condescending in a way that And also, I, like, I want to be like, if even if they these people don't understand sarcasm, like, what's so great about understanding sarcasm? Totally. And Rupert, your jokes aren't that great. Like, that's not your strong suit. Like, maybe, like, <laughs> diverge back into earnestness, you weirdo. <laughs> that okay. being said, there's this line. So, like, okay. So, he's been thrown in prison for defending the poor Arab person that we learn is Ahmed. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she's come to barter for him because the consulate has sent her to the prison to, like, break him out. And he says this thing about her in his mind. Her remarkable eyes, too, had opened very wide. Her mouth, previously taut with disapproval, shaped an O. The prim expression had acted, apparently, as a sort of corset. Freed of it, her mouth was soft and full. And I was like, oh! Thank you. Why were you like, oh, thank you? Because, like, the idea that your mouth is, like, a kind of corset and, like, the constraint that you have on your body is the kind of constraint that you would also have on your voice is the kind of constraint that you would also carry in your face. Yeah. I felt was really, really smart. And then freed of it, like, in a moment of, like, unguardedness where you feel, like, you know, the unclanging of whatever she keeps leashed on her face and that he, like, likened it to a corset being undone. I was like, that's really good. I like it. And then a lot of his focus in the novel is trying to push her totally outside of her normal limits of control. Speaking of descriptions, our hero is described as having an insolent nose. <laughs> what is he described as having? An insolent nose. What is that? Exactly! <laughs> I was like, that was insolent. Insolent. 
Insolent nose. I don't know what that is. What is the shape of insolence? I'm really glad that it wasn't Roman. God, I sounded like a fucking perfume commercial. <laughs> what is the shape of insolence? <laughs> but what does that mean? What is an insolent nose? I've heard that phrase so many times, and I'm finally... I'm. Have you? I've heard it more than once, which feels like a lot for a phrase like frankly, insolent yeah. nose. Yeah. Uh, yeah, once is a lot, frankly. What does it mean? Tilted upwards. Oh, that makes sense. That would be my closest guess. But then it would be like pert, but only male if it's a girl never described yeah. as pert. I wonder why that is. It's too cute. Mm. Why are nipples described as pert? Are they? Mm-hmm. This is about pert nipples. Pert and plus. noses. Maybe it means like puffy, because pert, I always think about pert plus shampoo. It's <laughs> volumizing your hair. Volumizing. It's like a nice puffy nipple. Ooh. Well, we all have preferences. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel like the nipple is like one of the few like <laughs> unpoliced areas of a woman's body or where you can just like like what you like because there aren't like tons and tons of ads or anything that are like this is the right kind of nipple to like or like mm. this is the best looking kind of nipple. I mean, I feel nipple shame, but that's... You do? Why do you feel nipple shame? But I recognize that it's coming from nowhere. It's just like, I feel shame about everything else. So I'm like, these are probably dumb too, right? What's like, th- so there's no, there's no particular thing We're you've observed about them. your nipples that are shameful? No, I just think like, you know, there's so many specific, like everything's a thing. And I think that's true with nipples. Like there are like cotton ball nipples. What? There are ghost nipples. I don't know what a ghost nipple is. There are tiny nipples. That's true. There are brown nipples. Yes. But like everything's a thing. I don't know what you mean. Everything's a preference. And so, like, the idea that, like, my nipples would have, like, a special designation. I think this is really interesting. There's inverted nipples. Yep. And extroverted nipples. Mm -hmm. Also, when you're breastfeeding, your nipples, like, become, like, basically fingers. Like little pepperonis. Like like this. But also the color and texture of pepperoni. (laughs) Yeah, they have to become hard because somebody's fucking chewing on them. They're calloused. What I was going to say about this is, um, I also think it's interesting that you bring up the unpoliceness of nipples but then you also bring up this insecurity around it because well it's just like i assumed that anytime anything had like a special name to it it was because it was bad Mm. whereas like i don't think that's actually true in this case i think people are just like categorizing and describing so that they can google it later yeah in the world of internet searches you know Mm. it makes it accessible what you like and so it's not necessarily a negative thing you know like if someone called you short pants it's like, yeah, I feel ashamed about the length of my shorts, you know? Don't bring up... <laughs> wait, 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 I was like, I'm going to put in short pants. Hold on, hold on. Okay. Short pants is a bad... But like, if someone, like, if someone calls you... Pert nose? No, I'm trying to think of, like, an actual insult people have that's really just, like, a description. But, like, something outward. Like, when, like, you have a flat chest and they call them, like, mosquito bites? <gasps> yeah, something like that. Like, mosquito Ooh, bites, right? Man. And because there's not really a word... Well, there's, like, jugs or bazungas. <laughs> this, okay. is, this isn't the right metaphor either. <laughs> so, I, I like, I kind of... I, I'm not exactly sure where we are, but like I, I I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna, get there. <laughs> I'm gonna help you. And so like the thing that you're saying about nipples being unpoliced really lit this light bulb off for me. I had this particular experience when I was in college where I went to an all-girls school and like it hadn't occurred to me that nipples were different because I was obviously an idiot and hadn't been thinking about women's bodies as being You hadn't in, been looking at them. Right. So like it just didn't I thought like at whatever. And so then I had like this beautiful cast of friends. I don't even remember how it came up, but I was like, my nipples look this way what do your nipples look like and then like the four of us were like well this is my nipple and this is my and like the diversity of nipples was fascinating to me Mm. it was like a real mind-blowing moment it was like oh everybody's nipples are different which of course like everybody's feet are different everybody's fingernails are feet are a really good example (laughs) (laughs) because if someone like points out like you're flat footed or you've got mm. ski feet or something. If someone calls you ski feet, like it's like really just a designation of like, if you have narrow long feet, people <laughs> say you have ski feet. I've never heard that in my whole life. I've heard life. banana feet. Banana <laughs> feet is another, it works as well. But like you have these like, because it's a thing, because people don't have a special term for just like regular feet. Yeah. Or whatever the idea of like a normal foot is. Right. You assume that if there's a special designation that implies abnormality. Yeah. Whereas like there isn't really like there's no default. Yeah, there's I, I can't think of like a, a, a regular nipple. Right. Because there isn't one. Yeah. 
And so, like, just because I have a certain type of nipple that is easily Googled. <laughs> Quit looking, Kim. You're not going to see them. Well, it's regularly Googled. Now I'm intrigued. Like, yeah, me too. Too much mystery. Like, what are you saying? I want to see your nipples now. No! But I thought that it was like, oh, this is bad. I should hide my nipples. But it's not really... It's not bad. I think, again, this is, is like, I wish everybody had gone to an all-girls school for college. Like, I mean, I got over this in high school. Well, that's great. And at um, least I knew there were different kinds of nipples before I got to college. Yeah, good well, for you. I didn't know because I'm an idiot and I hadn't thought about you're it. You're not an idiot. Well, there's something interesting, too, about the difference between what guys know about women's nipples yeah. and how often they've women thought about them. about women's nipples. I noticed, like, two years ago that they were different shapes. <laughs> And my boyfriend said, I noticed that the first time we had sex five years ago, <laughs> which is kind of alarming that we, I just considered it so little. It? One day I was alarmed by it. I was like, maybe something is wrong. Maybe He's I'm like, mutating. No, it's always been like that. Yeah. Which is also not romantic in no, a way. No, it's just like you. Brandon told me my feet stink after being together for, he said they no longer stink, but they used to. And he never mentioned it before, but that they reeked throughout my life. So considerate, Brandon. Is that considerate? No, it's not. Thank you, Kim. It's not considerate. No, and I was like, you would tell me if my breath stank or something. He was like, yeah, of course I would. And then he's like, your feet used to smell so bad when we lived in Lawrence. Like, the whole time you lived there, your feet reeked. And that's something I never told you. (laughs) It's obviously shitty. That's why you're laughing. Quit acting like... I've had this conversation with Isabeau now three times. It's never made it past Dick's cuts. Maybe this time. So do we want to get back to Egypt? <laughs> do we want to talk about nipples some more? Yeah. Well, he doesn't, they don't really go into it. No, he just sucks on them a bit. Yeah. Just a tiny bit. Yeah. But there is something interesting about the way they try to define how Daphne looks. Mm-hmm, that yeah. they can never quite settle on a specific appearance. Mm-hmm. She's not pretty. Mm-hmm. She's not beautiful. They call her handsome. They say sometimes she's handsome. Striking. Striking. Mm-hmm. Like a goddess. Mm-hmm. I love the way that he's like, what's happened to you? Your goddess smell is gone. Mm. And like, because she smells like incense and like papyri and like old books and like I I love that he like nuzzles into her neck and is like I smell this thing that is you like that mutual recognition moment is super sexy to me but yeah I think she's supposed to be a cypher right like we're all supposed to imagine ourselves as Daphne and Mm. like that's why she smells like frankincense and ambergris yeah shout out I love ambergris whales (laughs) <laughs> mm, so sexy. So sexy. It's a great preservative. <laughs> you don't like BPA. Ambergris, I want you to take off all of your clothes. Ambergris can't take off all of its clothes. Look at yourself in a full length mirror, Ambergris, and say, I'm a great preservative and I don't cause cancer. And accept yourself, baby. <laughs> Kim, do you. <laughs> Don't ask me about ambergris. I have no opinion. I'm not going to talk to you about ambergris. Why would you? Why would you ever have an opinion? Kim, what did you think of Daphne? Let's talk about Daphne. Let's talk about our hero and heroine. Hero. Yeah. Redhead to redhead. Yeah. Faux redhead. Oh, faux. To oh, real redhead. Mean, Sorry. She's probably faux as well. That's fine. She's I don't like, think she's faux. She's putting henna in there. The car- no, the carpet The carpet matches the curtains. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, let's talk about what's cool about Daphne. Yeah. Which is that she's a crazy expert in something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is exciting. And that she's also capable of feeling a lot of extreme emotions without you feeling like she's hysterical or across. She calls herself hysterical sometimes. They joke about her being hysterical. Virgil would say she was hysterical. Right. But a lot of what she's kind of figuring out is that she's actually quite great on her own. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that's great about Loretta Chase is that her female characters are often much more talented than the male characters are. Yeah. They're really good at something. And I think that that's kind of not rare in romance novels, but a lot of times in period pieces, it's like they don't have a particular talent or interest. They're just kind of struggling along. I also felt very comfortable with Daphne's growth as a character through these male characters. Normally, I think it can be like, I don't like it. Mm -hmm. Like the reasoning behind like why she's now a better person because she has this man to take care of or this 
man has shown her, you know? Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, so Daphne's impetus to go on this adventure is that she loves her brother. Mm-hmm. Who's also protecting her secret and helping her be the person so that, that she, she truly yeah, yeah, and, like, providing a decent cover for her is always supportive and then, like, her growth through meeting Rupert is more like coming into her own. Finding someone who says it's okay for you to learn how to shoot a gun or it's okay. For, like, she just feels like she's given permission in a world that requires permission. As opposed to, like, creating something out of nothing. What's interesting is at one point she says, this isn't who I am. I'm this boring, bookish person. Mm-hmm. Which is never who we see her as, even before Rupert. Yeah. She's already talking about cross-dressing to escape the town. Yeah. She goes into the bottom of this prison and negotiates him for, like, six pounds or whatever. When it's he was like originally really 2,000 pounds. aggressive. Yeah. So it's like she has always been this way. Rupert uh-huh. just enables her. And when <laughs> he to says, see it herself. Right. Yes. And to inhabit it fully. And the thing that he says is she's like, you know, I'm just rising to meet the occasion. He's like, no, the occasion is rising to meet you. Yeah. And I was like, there's never a moment. And that's oh my so God, true. I love it so much. I do too. <laughs> the occasion is rising to meet you. Yeah. And it's so beautiful that you bring that up because she does say that she's hysterical. She does say that she's these things. And he's constantly saying, no, you're seeing yourself incorrectly. Rupert is like so fucking good. So good. My favorite hero so far. Oh. Whoa. Even more than Edward? Mm-hmm. Ed who? <laughs> Word. That was dumb. <laughs> it wasn't dumb. Edward Schmedward. I agree. Rupert fucking stole my heart. Kim, thank you so much for recommending this. He's kind of a revelation. Yeah, he totally is. I think I love series, like romance series. And Mm -hmm. I find in a lot of series, there's like the humorous character that you get to later, who when you get to his novel is not funny and is suddenly brooding. And you wonder what happened to this charming character and why is he now this generic, sad romance hero? Rupert is like providing all of the comedy and lightheartedness while still being totally heartfelt and charming. That I always want. Mm-hmm. In earnest. And his conflict, like, their conflicts always felt, like, genuine and earned and, mm-hmm. like, worthy of my giving a shit. Mm-hmm. Like, I, one of my biggest problems with romance novel hero problems is that they're not really problems. Right. And they're boring and they tend to be, like, he's brooding because he, like, his cares mom died. too much, you know, or something like that. Whereas I think Rupert cares a lot does not brood over it and is dealing with like problems of like not wanting to scandalize the woman he's in love with, but is actually looking for solutions. Mm-hmm. To, but like, never loses his sense of joie de vivre humor. Like, and yeah. I think that's really important. Never broods. Yeah. Only once when she kisses him after they shot the rifle and she goes like super hard shame on herself and then he like kicks the dirt and he's all mad and he's like oh he felt his conscience for the first time in like 20 years like whatever you've always had a conscience Rupert you can't fool me but I I I like that I like that even in his brooding he's kind of like funny yes and you feel it all the way with him like him kicking the dirt the sand you know it feels like Silly and dumb, and you can kind of tell he feels stupid after doing it. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I love that. That's another great moment where he's like, I like, ma. Well, I was That's stupid. I'm <laughs> <And> like, <laughs> he's all numb. totally. Where it's like that was outsized. But Some like, expression of rage, and it's like, who am I? <laughs> <laughs> but there's this moment where he wakes up in the cave because they're escaping the sandstorm. Totally <clears throat> sexy, totally awesome. It and smells like dead people. I did not in the cave. I was like, oh no, this is not a sexy setting oh but it is mm. but it, it turns it up and he's calling for her and he's and he's calling her mrs pembroke because that's her appellation and he's like i don't even know her fucking first name <laughs> mrs pembroke mrs pembroke <laughs> and like they have sex before he knows her first name and i love that like the constraints of society have put it in such a way that he's like i have to have you mrs pembroke <laughs> and then he's like finally like it's fucked up that i don't know your what's your name <laughs> And she's like, Daphne. He's also a surprisingly passive hero. Mm. He's not driving the boat. No, he's not. He keeps wanting, he has desires about what they do. He wants the adventure to continue, but he just puts things on the table and then waits for her to decide yeah. what to do, which is lovely yeah. and or when exciting. he touches her, when he touches her breast for the first time, it's a very sexy scene. But then she like cuts it off and he's like, no, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I love that too, though, because she's like, what are you doing? And he's like, taking off your clothes. (laughs) And then she's like, don't. And she like slams the door in his face. And he's like, well, 
Shouldn't have done it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> too much too soon. Oh, I screwed up. He's <laughs> the golden retriever. Yeah. yeah. I slept on the porch because I love you. <laughs> I like that he says things, but it never feels like he's going beyond his own capacity and articulation. Hmm. Right. As far as, like, the language that he uses? Yeah. Her dialogue is just so good. It is really good. It's really good. I'm glad we've all agreed. <laughs> the official meeting of dialogue judges is adjourned. Great. So let's talk about the adventure <laughs> part, right? So we've talked about our heroine, our heroine. Um, I think Kim wanted to say something about the dialogue. I'm sorry, Kim. I think Rona Chase's sex scenes are good. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say they're my favorite. Uh-huh. Um, Who are your favorite? I There's a lot. Um... <laughs> But I, I think that her dialogue is sexier just in the chemistry that she builds between them. That they can yeah. kind of be mean to each other, but it doesn't ever feel mean. That they can joke around each other, but you just feel the yeah. affection towards each other. Yeah. There's one book where she calls herself a stupid female all the time. And he's like, man, you're such a stupid girl. But it's because they're both acknowledging that she's a genius. Yeah. That's totally on his level. I think there's something kind of magical about that. That neither of the characters take themselves too seriously and kind of work through the bad feelings of the time period about women mm-hmm. in a way that feels therapeutic. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I like in particular about him. He's definitely not a hero who takes himself seriously. Mm-hmm. I want to give an example of this great dialogue. Okay, I okay. can't stop. Obviously. No, do it. But um, she tells him, I'm no mystery, she said crossly. I'm so good at reading. I told you, your mind is so intriguing, he said, so filled with learning and all those secrets too. Complicated, fascinating. Right? Like, I wouldn't think he would, you know, he's just working through it himself. And then she says, uh, her expression grew wary. My mind, she said, you kissed me for my mind. Don't be ridiculous, he said. Do you want to see pyramids? (laughs) (laughs) They're that way. (laughs) It's so good. It's so good. I would watch the shit out of this movie. Yeah, it's very charming. It is charming. And, like, his inner dialogue is so charming, too. Like, the dialogue, it's, like, both the inner dialogue, the outer dialogue. Because, like, there's this other moment later where he's, like, typical Rupert thought. Make love to a woman and she thinks she owns you. Well, she did. (laughs) Rupert, she said, unprompted. She called him by his Christian name and they were not even making love. Yet to his ears, it sounded like lovemaking. The way she crooned his name, the way the foreign words sounded in her mouth, his mind conjured harems and concubines and dancing girls, and she was all of them, it seemed. All the most alluring women in the world in one. Mm. I like this one, where he says, I can't eat just yet, he said. I am too, too, he frowned. Too something. Feelings. It doesn't in any way, like, cheapen the expression. Like, no. You're always like, oh, it's so, it's so worthy. What is it? I both ardently, I ardently admire you. Rise up and, like, Mr. Darcy. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't know. I concentrate more on it is as if there is a string from my rib tied to one of your. But, like, Rupert would never say anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't. I feel like a lot of times in these books, expressions of love get a little outside of the character Mm -hmm. and ultimately I realize that it's like exactly what you would want to hear from someone but it ultimately like cheapens the payoff Rupert's dialogue was always on the money always gratifying and funny and just lovely Mm -hmm. and they're both kind of emotionally stupid in some ways yeah Yeah. they're both kind of confused about what they feel how they feel so I think, like, in the yeah. end, when Miles says, oh, you're in love with her, and he's, oh. <laughs> you know, I've been wondering what that was. Huh. That makes sense. Yeah. That feels totally appropriate yeah. and lovely at the yeah, same yeah. time. Appropriate and lovely maybe should be the title of this episode. <laughs> So What's difficult about Rupert when I read him when I was 18 versus reading him now, like a decade later, is that... I do have complex feelings about him in some ways. Like, maybe because I was just reading an article about male stupidity and how male stupidity is often used as a replacement for male vulnerability. Mm. So this idea that you can be a dumb white male but not be vulnerable in any way, not sacrifice any power in any way. Mm. And in a lot of ways, he maintains the upper hand at all times. He deliberately plays dumb quite often when she has no idea. And he is kind of, you know, the powerhouse between the two of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, he does rescue her in the end, Mm -hmm. more or less. So there's something kind of complicated about him. Also, like, his refusal to learn Arabic in any way, shape, or form. That was really unpleasant, frankly. Yeah, and whenever he becomes the daddy... Yeah. 
Yeah. It's like I, because I, I can't help but love him, but I also kind of hate that I love him sometimes because yeah. he is kind of obnoxious. Kinda, like, and does it, but doesn't that just like make it more real? It does cause because they, he, we he, are a room full of women in long term relationships with white are. straight guys. This is true. His embodiment of his privilege, <laughs> though, especially in the moment of not learning Arabic when she's constantly repeating the words for him. And he also knows how to pronounce them. He's yeah. just being difficult. Right. Right. He's like, why can't they just learn English? It's so much easier. Yeah. But once again, I was like, yeah, I believe that about him, that being, he would hold that attitude. Being the fourth son of an earl. Yeah. And it's also hard to tell where he's deliberately trying to irritate her, which is quite often the case. Yeah. yeah. Also gross. Like when he said that I'm like deliberately trying to irritate you I'm like fuck you trying to get a rise out of a woman like that's the way that you're gonna get her attention like don't be 14 we're past he that. is kind of he 14, 14 though. Though. yeah I mean, everything we, we said that we liked about him is also <laughs> well I don't want to say this on the record not everything but it's a little juvenile it's juvenile he named a donkey Hermione yeah that's pretty juvenile like, this, little, this little kitty is Magog. This one's gonna be Gog. I can't have sex with her, so I'm gonna go beat some people up. Yeah! Like, he is very juvenile. So I feel a little bad how much I love him. <sighs> so that's a weird revelation about myself that was hard to deal with in some ways. I think that's right. I think that's good. I'm glad that you brought that up, Kim. So I wanna know can I take a survey? Sure. What was the sexiest part? Let's start with you, Isabel. What was the sexiest part for you? Mm. I noticed that she didn't meet any dads or try to get freedom <laughs> in this book, so it's probably hard for you to get damp. But uh, I <laughs> hope you let's, were let's able go to not refer to it as like fucking damp. All right, like <laughs> fuck. Um, I thought the <laughs> you said you didn't like the word moist. I don't. I also don't like damp. Well, what seems like an overstatement? Sloppy. <laughs> They Slippery. Do, they do say, yeah. like, I like getting her sloppy. <laughs> what? <laughs> never heard that. Where? Getting her sloppy? I thought sloppy was what happened when you, like, got Making drunk her and... sloppy. No. Making her sloppy? That's a phrase? Yeah. yeah. That's a phrase in Slop, romance. Slop? Like, what they put in troughs? You said shorthands, like, that's normal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Strange vocabulary. Shorthands is not sexual <laughs> in nature. Could be. Shorthands is, like, whenever you call someone, like, a kid. Like, hey, short pants. <laughs> no, it's not Like, Isabel, sense. you could call me short pants whenever I'm being dumb. I don't understand how those two thoughts are connected. Because when you're a kid, you wear short pants. Why? Like, and then when you're an adult, you wear full pants. So, like, when you're FDR, you wore short pants because you weren't an adult yet. Is that what, what is you're talking about? What does that do with Like, it? the tradition of putting boys in short pants and yes. then transitioning into yes. long pants. Yes, yes, That's the thing you're talking about. Yes, and you... As but a it's mark like, of maturity. Yeah, but it's like, you could call someone short pants. Yeah, I but you only know. called it... You only called dudes <laughs> short pants and you stopped calling dudes in short pants after, like, 1919. Well, some of us have carried it with us. <laughs> I just don't see kids in capris ever. <laughs> ever. So. You don't see kids in short pants? Are you talking about shorts? Are you talking about capris? Are you talking about what? We do. Okay, we would call them shorts today. Sure. (laughs) Society has moved on. But the term short pants as an insult still exists. Unless you're 90. I'm an old soul. Okay. I'm a lunar Scorpio (laughs) with a Taurus rising. Delete all of it. I don't want anyone to know that I use the term short pants or that I have an easily Googleable style of nipple. Delete all? No, not like I do. This doesn't mean you can like Google Morgan nipples a minute. I'm not going into it. I was about to say something and I can't remember what it was. You're going to talk about the best sex scene. I mean, okay. Okay. Oh, but (laughs) you're so mean is how we got here. Okay, so I have two favorite sex scenes. What was the sexiest part of the book? It doesn't have to be a sex scene. It can just be the sexiest part of the book. How are we defining sexiest? The same way we always have. The part that you thought was sexiest. It changes for me like Rupert has changed things he's he's redone the landscape I mean in this book obviously <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like the sexiest part of culture <laughs> up to this point. 
Like I'll say, I'll say the moment I found Rupert sexiest Uh is when they're at Giza and Mm. they just describe him as straddling some Mm -hmm. kind of space. Mm -hmm. You don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. And his shirt is slightly open. And he's just hands on his hips Mm -hmm. looking up at a pyramid. That was the moment I was like. It was like, Mm -hmm. you're Brendan Fraser. I hit that. Yeah. Um, Obviously the sexiest part in human culture up to this point is D'Angelo's music video for how does it feel? Or Channing Tatum's Dancing to Pony. Don't be silly. So, (laughs) no, we're going to take a break and we're going to watch Channing Tatum Dancing to Pony immediately followed by D'Angelo's How Does It Feel. And then we're going to watch some wrestling. And then we're going to watch the mummy make some decisions. Well done. This is our podcast within a podcast. Kim explains wrestling to Morgan and Isabel. Just wrestling thighs. WWE. Thighs. Thighs. Uh, my sexiest scene. Um, it's their second sex scene. They've just had uh, sex in the tomb because he was so worried about her. Mrs. Pembroke, <clears throat> Mrs. Pembroke. And then they come back and she chases after him because he hears Hermione and he's like, I have to go check on the donkey. Mm-hmm. And she chases him and she hasn't put her shirt back on. And he has this moment where she's like, she was like a goddess. She came running after me. Like, this is the woman I knew that was underneath all of that prim, whatever, whatever. And then he's like, I embarrassed myself before by like coming on her thighs so fast. I'm going to do it better this time. And he like goes down on her and it's the first time anybody's gone down on her. And it's a total revelation. The problem with the sex scenes in this is that most of it's really sandy. Yeah. That's true. No one likes sandy or it smells like corpses. Yeah. 3000 year old corpses. Yeah. I mean, like super old corpses. So it's not like fresh corpses. No. Still. It's not a charnel house. No. So I like that she says that she was satisfied the first time. And he says, what do you know? Yeah. <laughs> You've never been satisfied before. I'll show you. But then he also comes in her without yeah, permission. Without That's always a mixed feeling for me. I agree. I, I super like that she did not get pregnant at the end of the book. Though. I love yeah. that she has a period scene. Yeah. And he comforts her, her through it. He's like, what can I get you? How can and I take care of you? And he rubs her back. And he's like, I don't know what to do in this situation. I'll just rub your back. <laughs> was like very nice. So nice. I love that also like and one of the first times that we've had a like, period scene it also yeah. feels deeply progressive for this era mm-hmm. he likes to fix things yeah he does fixer. like to fix things what was your sexiest part morgan this is why we say sexiest part and not best sex scene because i rarely pick a scene where there's actual sex mm-hmm. i thought the sex scenes in this book were really wonderful so it's early in the book it's only like page 42 amazing and uh he's taking her off the saddle mm-hmm. of, of a camel donkey because the camel scene is a distinctive scene indeed camel curses miles and camel yep okay um anyways and he's gonna take her off he's of her mount whatever it is instinctively she grasped his shoulders smiling into her veiled countenance rupert held her in the air at eye level for a moment then slowly slowly he lowered her to the ground she did not immediately let go of his arms he did not immediately let go of her waist She remained utterly still, looking up at him. He couldn't see her face, but he could hear the hurried in and out of her breath. Then she let go and pushed away from him. There's some good build in this book. It's so so good! Even though, like, I don't feel like they were being prudish. Mm -mm. Right. There were sex scenes, varied and interesting, Mm -hmm. but the build never goes away, and Mm -hmm. the tension never goes away, and it's always really delightful. Yeah, like, they don't even kiss until page 116. Yeah. Which is pretty crazy. I feel like, okay, I don't want to be predictable and choose a sex scene for the sexiest scene. But when they have sex on the boat, when they have to be super quiet. Oh, And at so first, they're like, we're not going to do it. And then she's like, I miss you. Yeah. And it was like their goodbye. They thought it was going to be their last. Right? It's super Cheers. tender. It's super intense. She's on top. Mm. Always great. Which is something that she needed to do because she fantasized about it. And she and asked her right. dead husband if she could do it. And he was like, no. Yeah, that's not what women do. So I think that that's like a great everything moment kind of coming together. I and agree. It's really lovely. It's really lovely. I like when he comes to rescue her. So like there's mm. this whole thing with the brother. There's the kidnapping. That's why our hero and heroine are thrown together. Brother's been kidnapped by the French to begin with and then is recaptured by a nefarious British dude. Lord Noxious. Lord Noxious. Noxley. <laughs> he also comes up with like yeah, mean amazing nicknames. nicknames. He's so people. savage. I love it. He's very juvenile. Yeah. Um, and so there's this moment where, so they're thrown together. There's this whole kidnapping scene and... Is it when she's like yeah, in the bedroom? Yeah, so he's rescuing her and she's like, I can't leave my brother. 
And he's like, what do you mean you can't? Like, And she's like, there's this whole thing where the brother had to keep up the ruse of being the scholar. But all of that's come out now. And so she is now the piece in play. And but also she, she just loves her brother. Totally. But like the point I is... I maybe was over-identifying, but I was like, her brother's her best friend. He is her best friend. Yes. She has no other friends. But he's like, I'm here to rescue you. And she's like, I can't leave my brother. He has no value now because I've told them it's me that I know the treasure map. I know the language. And he's like, of course, this wouldn't be easy. And then like he has to leave through the window. It's like a very truncated rescue scene. And mm-hmm. then when he comes back to rescue her again, he gets shot in the side. But I love that. There's that scene where she's like, you can't rescue me here. I'm not the damsel in distress that you think I am. Like I am, but also I can't leave my brother. There are other competing factors here. And he's like, of course, and like mm-hmm. has to go. Mm-hmm. And I also love that we don't get his perspective again until he comes back where he's like thinking and waiting and being mm. like, burr, burr, burr. Like that's a really <laughs> good opportunity to have a brooding hero. Yeah. And Loretta Chase is like, nah, we're going to stick with Daphne. We're going to see what's happening here rather than yeah. have our hero be like, my rescue effort didn't work. And also I think the interesting thing about the rescue effort is like her life wasn't in danger. Like she had settled on, okay. I'm going to marry this guy. I can still continue my work. Mm -hmm. I like that her rescue was like rescuing her from settling. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, her life is never really threatened. Yeah. In the course of the novel. Yeah. Like she would have married another bad person, Mm -hmm. but that's kind of like the way things are. And honestly, even marrying Lord Noxious would be a step up from her dead husband. Which those scenes are, the memories of Virgil are so, there's very little about it. She has a moment where she remembers the way he would start his sentences, where he would say things like, surely you meant to say, or I think you were confused. Well, actually. That's all all you need to say to like embody that whole relationship. Yeah. Which is pretty. And also her brother is like, tells Rupert, he was like, yeah, the guy was obviously jealous of her brilliance and I don't want her to remarry someone who's going to repress her. No, that's one of the things that the brother is constantly saying to her and like why the brothers like why I really love Miles even though he's a little bit bumbling and like maybe bad with money where he's constantly saying I would oh yeah he's so bad with money but he's just like very excited to find something his sister would like and make her happy that he's like here's a million fucking dollars yeah the men that she meets on this journey are so supportive of her and I'm just like I love it so much do you feel like this book has some parallels to Romancing the Stone I'm gonna put that out there have you seen Romancing the Stone yes so good I feel like this is like a similar arc. Have to rescue the sister. Have to rescue the sister. It's really more about her kind of coming into her own because it's not like realizing things about herself. Yeah. And that the hero isn't really the most useful aspect of the story. Right. Yeah. Like, I would not say he's unnecessary, but... He's not pivotal in the terms of the adventure Everything, Everything exists without him. He just... He's a support role. Adds color and energy. What was the weirdest part? Oh, I don't know. Weirdest? Like, in a bad way? Or... Whatever. Just weirdest. I think some of the parts that weren't narrated by the two of them. Mm, like the Gaza thing? Yeah. Gazi. When he just, like, decapitates Farouk. It's kind of... Actually, most of the murders... Yeah. I thought were handled strangely. I think that it's difficult to have murder in a lighthearted novel. Because mm. then it just feels like they're not important. Yeah. So, like, when the two Egyptian guys get killed in, like, the pyramid and one of the first things that they have and it's like oh that's terrible this guy is hot oh I feel bad about those people moving on to humorous things <laughs> I don't know where my emotions were going yeah he fed their corpses to those crocodiles you probably saw I did see crocodiles let's kiss it's a little <laughs> difficult yeah yeah what was your weirdest part Morgan insolent nose <laughs> no I think um my most difficult part was um the relationship between Rupert and and actually Daphne and the Egyptians, mm-hmm. which we talked about at mm-hmm. length. But there is a particular like hinge scene. Um, Rupert looked about him, a baby, women, a pair of adolescent boys. He was the father. <laughs> I feel really like contextualize that at all. Well, I feel like it assumes. Okay, so on the boat, we find out that two of the servants have fallen in love. And one of the other servants, Tom, asks Rupert to negotiate the marriage. And Rupert's like, why would I do that? He's like, because you're the daddy. Um, no, 
He says, they don't have a father. And so now we belong to you, the boy concluded. You are our master and our father. Right? Like, that's the really <laughs> weird part. And he's just like, and Rupert's like, okay, man. And then he goes uh, into Daphne's office and Daphne's like, well, I've done enough anthropological research that I realize that this is not a big deal because she's a widow. It's really easy for them to get married if she's into it. And blah, 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 you know? Mm-hmm. But that too, like, this idea of them, like, administering these people's personal lives was particularly ucky, but also the assumption that, like, given these circumstances, a father is necessary and Rupert is the necessary father. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't dig it. No, indeed. The, that was the weirdest part for me. For sure. Because you want it to feel like a good moment. You know, you want it to feel like, oh, look at this little family that we've created. created. Yeah. And then just to shat, like, be like, yeah, we've created a patriarchal <laughs> colonialist <laughs> system on our little boat of dreams. <laughs> look, we got them to buy in. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, yeah. You're like originally like, oh, they're on an adventure. Like, she just discovered oral sex. And it's like, and. It's a patriarchal system. And super racist. Yeah. And a super racist one at that. Yeah. And also that Rupert's just like, wow, look at all these clown shoes. I guess I am the dad. (laughs) (laughs) All these short pants running around this boat. They're literally 14 and they're not in long pants, which would be applicable for 1821. Bringing it full circle. My weirdest part was the competing colonial interests. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. Right? So we have Lord Noxious slash Lord Noxley, who's trying to get this map slash the scholar who can read it. And you have this competing French guy. Monsieur Duval. Yeah, Monsieur Duval. Once Duval loses the brother and the papyri map of treasure, like, he becomes really unimportant. So, like, why have him at all? Why hmm. have, like, why have Miles switch hands? He's no less kidnapped. He's no less in peril. Why don't we just have one? Like, I understand why she created two. I think she's kind of maybe being a little bit of an indulgent historian. Ah. Because Hmm. there is this line, because I also thought, I was like, we could have done this different ways, you know? Yeah. Like, I understand the idea of him going from, like, out of the frying pan into the fire Mm -hmm. is interesting. Sure. And so you've got to have a frying pan in order to justify the fire, Mm -hmm. right? Or something. A fire to justify the frying pan. Indeed. We do have, like, a couple chapters in Duval's perspective. And he says his countrymen saw intellectual enlightenment as well as military conquest. And that's why he understands himself as superior to the English, which I think does a good job of summarizing, like, you're both assholes. You know, and I think that points out the book's consciousness is very much grounded in, like, a modern understanding of the problem of colonialism. Yes. Because it's able to point out the problems in their own logic. And even implicates Daphne in it, too. Yes. Because she has a realization of, oh, I'm an academic. I keep myself separate from all these things. But the papyrus that I have was taken from one of these tombs. Tombs. Yeah. She has a a corpse desecration. Because Rupert is the one who has, like, an immediate visceral reaction to the idea of corpse and tomb desecration. Because he saw a mummy unwrapped in England. And he's like, they talk about how it's a woman. And they know that because of her skeletal structure. But, like, don't they have sisters? wives, mothers, like, why are we doing this? Why are people paying for this whole moment of, like, the performance and, like, this, like, grotesque? Yeah. And he's really undone by it. And I think that's, like, really interesting, especially around tomb desecration. Like, Daphne says in that same monologue about, like, the papyri, where, like, I'm above it as an academic, but is it better for me to have it as an academic versus, like, tomb raider? Mm-hmm. But the only reason tomb raiders exist is because academics will pay for the stuff they steal. Totally. Looking at you, Hobby Lobby. Yeah, what the hell, Hobby Lobby? <laughs> Fuck you, Hobby Lobby. Also, please stop shopping at Hobby Lobby, listeners. They're bad people. Michael's is just next door. I know it's a little bit more expensive, but... And it's not, really. Not with their coupons. Yeah, Michael's always got a coupon. Michael's is one of the few stores that if you, like, Google Michael's coupon, you actually get usable coupons. Yeah, it's like Joanne Fabrics. But if Rupert worked at Hobby Lobby... Oh. I'd, I'd have go in there and I'd shoplift. <laughs> While I was looking at... <laughs> actually, you like, hoping shoplift he'd catch you. From, from Hobby Lobby. That feels yeah, like a great. moral... Yeah, that's great. Yeah, do that. I don't know disobedience. Do it carefully, listeners. They do indeed have a shrink budget. You deserve one of those little cat statues. Something that you can fit in your pocket. We'll wait while you (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 
any last thoughts that we have for Loretta Chase and Mr. Impossible? Well, I would like to take advantage of the fact that as the romance neophyte, I am in the presence of two experts. And Kim, early on, you said that Loretta Chase writes good sex scenes, but not your favorite sex scenes. Who writes your favorite sex scenes? I mean, who do I, when I want to read a sex scene, go to? Yeah. I mean, it's going to be always Lisa Claypas. The Claypas. She gets it. Lioness in her field. What? <laughs> Lioness in her She gets her that field. deep penetration. Deep penetration. She got that DP. Can you explain what you mean by like she by gets the deep DP. penetration? Like and suddenly you and it's like, and she had to lift her legs around his back. Did she talk about like her cervix getting nudged or something? Ew, no. That's you know what? Almost. I would not put it past Lisa Claypas. Neither would I. To talk about cervixes? Yeah. Or like how deep it is that you could like feel a tickle. Shout out to my dad Rhoda Porto. <laughs> <laughs> cervix play. <laughs> Kim, how long have you been reading romances? Fifteen years. Fifteen years. What is your all-time favorite book? From the genre? I don't, I don't know. Depends on what I want. Five years ago, it would be Mr. Impossible. Mm-hmm. I think it hits everything I want. Yeah. In a romance novel. But it's not the one I've read the most. Which one have you read the most? Probably the Lisa K novel. Which one, though? Maybe Dreaming of You. Mm. What's Dreaming of You? It's a writer and a gambler. No. Derek Craven. Her last names. And are Sarah Fielding. So good. Romance or romance? <laughs> Oh my god, it's a romance! Yeah. I texted my brother when I was drunk and reading this, <laughs> and I was like, you've got to read Mr. Impossible! I've told everyone to read this book! I feel like I kind of ruined the podcast, because I had talked to everybody about it like an idiot. <laughs> I have also recommended this book to numerous individuals. They're called the Mongoose! I think it's a gateway book. That if you weren't into romance novels... Yeah, it's for sure a yeah. gateway romance novel. And it's like, it's enough of a hook where I'm like, I'm... I'm I ended up buying the series and we'll read it. Whether or not we read it on the podcast, I'm going to read the series. So like, yeah, I mean, Loretta Chase fucking slam dunk, whoa man, deep, penetrating, throbbing romance. <laughs> Into it. I'm definitely gonna reread this one. Cool. Womance or nomance for you, Kim? Obviously a romance. I think if I could write like one author, it would be Loretta Chase. I think she really just has God, she's so talented. Yeah, she is. She's a real craftsman. She is. And I think she embodies what I like about romance novels, which is enjoying what can often be silly. I don't feel like her romance novels have to take themselves too seriously. They're not perfect. Mm -hmm. No. But you feel like she had a a good time writing them. And they're also not distractingly bad. Right. Which we now know is a possibility. Indeed. She embodies the fantasy in a way that feels both earnest, but not too earnest. No. No. I think Rupert's my favorite hero. Yeah, so far. Sorry, Edward. Holding it down. I'm fickle. Get the fuck out, Edward. (laughs) (laughs) Are we talking about Twilight? What are we talking about? No, we're talking about Courtney Milan's suffragette scandal. Edward, heretofore, was our favorite combined hero who had surplanted Colin from Tessa Dare's A Week to Be Wicked for me. He was just my first favorite. But now it's Rupert. Now it's Rupert. It's going to be hard to top Rupert. It might be. We'll see. We got a lot to go. He hasn't been topped yet. I've read other books since then. <laughs> Spoilers. Spoilers. This opinion will not change for at least the next three episodes. Excellent. Anyway, thanks for listening. Kim, thank you so much for being a part of our experience. My pleasure. Romance. It's been a lot of very scintillating conversation and we really appreciate having your expertise on our show this is so much fun uh <laughs> thank you listeners if you would go ahead it's nice to have someone on the guest in the podcast den who makes eye contact with me as i talk about <laughs> romance it's a lot of deep eye contact yeah because when nick when nick came to help us record just looking everywhere <laughs> to be fair the first episode was an inconvenient pirate love wherein every chapter began with rape that was the oh and then i talked about how i liked part of you listened to the episode i thought maybe it was the one where we talked about masturbating for a whole day no that was the first episode i could totally look into somebody's eyes while they said that nick very kindly asked me if i wanted to leave that in the episode and i decided that yes i want to be seen nick very kindly asked isabeau via me (laughs) (laughs) no he asked me himself you did who hasn't been there is my question (laughs) 
<laughs> Who's never had pretty fingers? Uh, if you want to tweet to us about your sad existence wherein you've never <laughs> masturbated for a full day, you can find us at WoMansPod on Twitter. <laughs> or at WoMansMail at gmail.com. Uh, Womance on Instagram. We're going to post a picture of Kim in her beautiful outfit holding her beautiful book. She brought a real book today. And I'm sweating profusely. It is really hard. <laughs> I'm wearing overalls. <laughs> Short pants. Short pants. <laughs> uh, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again for listening. Rate us five stars. Tell your mom. Tell your grandma. Tell all your friends. And if anyone is condescending to you about romance novels, or you're be like, to the left, short pants. <laughs> <laughs> With that, listeners, loosen your stays. The number of principles. Mwah! Mwah! Blow kiss cam. Hey folks, it's Morgan. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Our logo is by Mary Reichman and our original music and editing is by Nick Gravelin. They're the best. Feeling woeful about waiting a whole week for more Womance? Well, chin up, buttercup. You can creep or connect with us anytime on Twitter. We're at woe underscore mance or Instagram, womance, all one word. You can also find us on Tumblr at womance.tumblr.com. If you prefer to be more direct... Why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com. Can't wait to hear from you. And don't forget to tune in next week.